Uh, well, if you got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 1. We're going to be starting now, officially, in the very beginning. <laughs> uh, if you uh, were here with us last week, you know that we introduced the reason why John wrote his gospel. And the reason why he did was that you may believe that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that through him we have life. Uh, I also forgot to mention, too, as, as I'm getting used to the, the structure of service and everything, um, I realize we actually do have visitor cards in the back. So uh, if you are a visitor with us, if you ever uh, feel led to write one of those and hand it to myself or Mike or Tony after service, we'd love to connect with you and uh, have a conversation with you afterwards. And so... Uh, I, as I as I get used to those things, I'm uh, I get I'll get better at them. I promise. <laughs> uh, so if you got your Bibles, John chapter one, verses one through eighteen is where we're going to be living this morning. And whenever we look at Scripture, it's it's always I feel like it's always interesting to see how people start off these books and these letters. Um, if you're familiar, for example, with Paul's letters, a lot of them start with this. This opening where he welcomes who he or he says who he is, and then he goes into a prayer, and then he goes off in the rest of the book. If you are familiar with the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you know that they start with the the very beginning of Jesus's life. A lot of them start with with the virgin birth. Some of them start with John the Baptist. But again, like we said last week, the Gospel of John's a little different. It's uh, a little bit more unique. John's Gospel actually begins with what's commonly known as a prologue. Uh, this is called the prologue of the Gospel of John. And if you're familiar with the prologue, and prologue in storytelling is meant to, is used to give uh, background information about the story that's to come. It also happens to foreshadow what will happen later on sometimes. And so the prologue uh, isn't necessarily a uh, like a, a narrative part of the story, but rather it gives a lot of information that you need to know walking into that story. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, I don't really know. Have I ever read a prologue or have I seen that? And the reality is you probably have. It's a very big common storytelling element. In fact, uh, one of the most popular prologues that, that I can remember at least is from Peter Jackson's The Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, if you're familiar with the books, for example, J.R. Tolkien's uh, novels, he never actually gives a prologue, but what Peter Jackson does in his films is he gives this really long 15-minute prologue about what happens in these crazy long movies. In the beginning, it begins with a character who narrates all the things that happened thousands of years before the story takes place. She introduces characters, she introduces the conflict, and she introduces different themes that are going to continue to carry forward as the films carry on. So, for example, one of the things that uh, is talked about in the prologue for The Lord of the Rings is how man desires power over all things. And whenever you look at the films, you see this narrative taking place over and over again where the, man, the men in the story struggle with their lust for power. And so... She gives a lot of themes and struggles, and these things echo throughout the rest of the films. But this isn't the only place we see prologues. We also see them, for example, in Star Wars. Anytime you see the, the opening crawl in Star Wars and you see the big chunk of text that you probably don't read, that's important background information for the movies. That is actually considered a prologue. Or, uh, for example, in Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, there's a 10-minute segment that shows young Indiana Jones and how he got his whip and his hat and 
how he became the archaeologist that likes to find things and get into danger. So we, we are not, we are, we are not uh, unfamiliar with the use of prologues and what they seek to do. But John's prologue is really neat because not only does it accomplish something similar in giving us background information, giving us characters, giving us things we need to know in the future, but John's prologue actually has things that echo throughout this gospel and beyond. And so we'll read this here this morning, starting in verse 1, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through Him, and without Him not anything that was made. For in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out. There was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, we just thank you for this morning and Thank you for the opportunity to worship. And God, we thank you for your word. God, thank you for this word that, that God shows us your grace and truth. And, and as we see these things echoed throughout the rest of your book, God, we're grateful for, Father, the way that you loved us through your son, Jesus. And God, that he lived a perfect life, and God, He came and lived a life in the flesh, but Father, He was not just flesh. God, that He was You. And God, we just pray that we would recognize that as we see this text this morning. Father, that You would help us to recognize what it means to be a child of God, to belong to You. God, I pray as we, as we walk through this prologue, God, that we would see why Jesus is worthy of all honor and all praise and all glory. And God, I, I pray that we would see how these things echo throughout the rest of Scripture as well. And Father, I pray that even through our own weaknesses and our own sinful struggles and God, through our own flesh, Father, that you would still be glorified in the way that we, we live for you and God, the way that we seek to be obedient to you. So God, I pray that you would draw us near to you. Father, help us to love you more. Your son's only me pray. Amen. 
So this is the, the prologue of John, and it, you know, it's actually interesting that it's kind of almost like a summary of what this whole book's about. Um, we already kind of had that last week with this statement of why John wrote the book, but now we're kind of getting into what really encompasses, encompasses this book. And so if you look at John's prologue, it can really be broken down into four main components. And so if you're a note taker, this is kind of how we're going to look at it this morning. And so it really, John's prologue can be broken down to four main components. The first is we're going to see who Jesus is. Then we're going to see who John the Baptist is. Then we're going to see how people responded to Jesus. And then finally, what Jesus came to do. So those are the four components that make up this prologue. Who Jesus is, who John the Baptist is, how people responded to Jesus, and what Jesus came to do. And so let's start in the beginning, no pun intended, who Jesus is. <laughs> and if you look at this text, he, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Brilliantly, what John does in the very beginning of this is he echoes Genesis chapter 1. And so in Genesis chapter 1, I'm just going to turn there just so you can see uh, what it is. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. You probably already have this memorized anyways. Uh, it's a very popular text. Uh, in Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then John here says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So right from the very get-go, John begins this text hearkening all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. He's already making this connection back then, and he's claiming that Jesus, who we know as the Word, was there in the beginning, both with God and was God. And that's a big statement to make for John. And so what, what, does, this, what does this relate to? Well, there's a, there's a doctrine called the Trinity. And when you look at this text, you see the, the kind of what the Trinity encompasses here at the very beginning. We know that the Trinity... If, uh, is made up of three distinct persons, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I think sometimes we have this in our minds that the Trinity doesn't really work itself out except in a few key places in Scripture. But the reality is this is the way that God works, is that God is one, but he exists in three distinct persons, and each of these persons do things all throughout Scripture. And the Son is not someone who just sat at the sideline until it was time for Jesus to appear in the flesh on earth, but the son actually had a purpose even in the very beginning. And so we see aspects of the Trinity work out in creation itself. So for example, if you go all the way back to Genesis 1, what you'll see is you'll see language like God spoke everything into existence, right? We're familiar with that. Well, we know that God is spirit. God doesn't have a body. God, you know, the language that's used in there, like for example, whenever he says that uh, God molded man into, the, into his own image, and it, it's almost this, this, this uh, imagery of using hands as, as a potter uses on clay to mold something and to make something. But we know that God is spirit. So then what, is, what does scripture mean by that? Well, what it means is that when Jesus is called the word and John is saying that all creation is made through him and by him, what he's saying is that spoken word that is spoken at the very beginning, that was the son working in creation to create life, to create you and me, to create all that we see. And this isn't the only place that we see this. We also see this in Colossians chapter one, when it talks about how Jesus is above all and over all and, and through him, all things were made. But so why, why is it so important that we, that we look at this at the very beginning and see 
Jesus in creation because we need to see that not only was, was Jesus not created in terms of the way that you and I are created, but he's been there since the very beginning and he created all things and all things belong to him. And so he affirms also Jesus' deity by linking Jesus to the beginning and his equality with God. And then he tells us here at the very end, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Is that it's through Jesus that we have life. And although the enemy sought to try to stomp out the light all throughout the history of the Old Testament and the lineage of Jesus and all throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, the darkness never won. And so we have this picture of who Jesus is. So then who's John the Baptist? Verses 6 through 8 says this, Then there was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to bear witness about the light and all might believe through him. He was not the light, but the light came to bear witness about the light. I'm sorry, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And so who is John the Baptist? John the Baptist, this is not the same John who wrote this book. Uh, of course, if John the Baptist did write this book, it'd be a much shorter book because John is not in the story very long. If you're familiar with the story in any of the Gospels, his role is relatively small in terms of what he does in the different Gospels. And although his time was a little bit shorter in the Gospels, his role was actually really important. He was sent to bear witness about the coming kingdom of God. And John the Baptist was prophesied all the way back in Isaiah. Isaiah 41 through 5 says this, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and the flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Who is Isaiah talking about? He's talking about John the Baptist. This is very, very clearly John the Baptist. As John the Baptist is meant to make the way clear for Jesus. He's telling people, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's preparing the way for Jesus to come onto the scene and to begin to reveal who he is, that he is the Messiah, that it's through him that we have life. And then John, throughout this book, talks about how this is a man whose sandals I'm not even fit to to, to clean or to walk through, or, or he's, he's trying to give this picture of how important Jesus is. And even if you look a little bit later on, a few of the uh, religious leaders are asking John, well, are you the Messiah? Who are you? Are you an angel? Are you a prophet? What's your role? Who, what's your deal? And he says that I am meant, sent to sit, I'm sent to prepare the way for the coming Messiah, one who walks among you and you don't even recognize. And so John the Baptist's role was to prepare the people for Jesus, to prepare the way for him, and to bear witness to his glory. That's what John the Baptist's role was. And so we have John introducing us to two very important people as we begin this. Jesus, 
Obviously, Jesus is the most important person in this gospel. But then he also introduces John the Baptist. But why does he introduce John the Baptist? Because John the Baptist plays an integral role as to Jesus coming onto the scene and revealing himself as the Messiah, as the living Son of God, and, and through him that we have life. But I also think, too, if we look at the language that John uses to describe the way John the Baptist talks about Jesus, we see this language he uses of Jesus being worthy of all worship and praise. And the kind of witnessing that John the Baptist does is the kind of witnessing that we should do, right? We should be, we should be willing to, to share of the glory and the wonders of God and to speak in reverence of Jesus like John the Baptist does. And to also not be afraid of what, of what happens to us because of what we speak. See, John the Baptist was bold. And John the Baptist was a little strange too, right? I'm not saying that we should all start eating locusts and live in the woods and <laughs> wear the kind of clothes that John the Baptist wore, but, but rather that our attitude should be that of John the Baptist, that Jesus is worthy of all worship and honor and praise and that he is worth talking about. So then we have 9 and 13. How did people respond to Jesus? And I find it interesting that this is the way that he has it laid out because Quite frankly, if you were to look at this prologue, you would think a prologue would be, okay, you introduce the main characters, you introduce what's happening, and then at the very end, if you want to give a summary of what happened, you would then talk about how people responded to Jesus, right? You would talk about how Jesus came to live as a man, and, and Jesus lived a perfect life, and, and through him was grace and truth, and then after that said, how did people respond to that? Well, some people rejected him. Some people accepted and believed that. They became children of God. But that's not, sorry, Siri, but that's not how, gosh, this watch is killing me. I'm going to turn it off. I can't tell y'all how many times I, I am talking to somebody, especially at work, and this watch goes off, records everything, and then starts spewing it out, and I can't do anything until it turns off, so sorry about that. And maybe, maybe my Apple Watch needed to hear the gospel and got excited about it. So, anyways. But, but, but why would he put the response before what Jesus actually did? Well, because I, I believe that when we look at this, we see that the way that people responded is something that people still continue to do. The way people responded to Jesus then is the same way that people respond to Jesus now. And when we talk about how people responded to Jesus, we also have to understand, well, what were they responding to? Because that's why I think it's important that John puts this first. Because we have to understand what is it that people are believing in? What are people, what are people putting their trust in? And then he shares that after. And so how did people respond to Jesus? Well, there's two different ways they responded. Verses 10 through 11 reflects somebody that completely rejected Jesus. It says that he was rejected and, and not recognized. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, his own people did not receive him. That text is powerful. He created all things. All things were created by him and through him. He knows every strand of hair on your head. He knows everything about you. He knew everything about everyone who walked the earth at this time. 
But yet, as he was walking among these people, no one recognized him. No one recognized the creator. This was the worst episode of Undercover Boss ever. And for the people who did recognize him, though, there's always this, 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 this awe and wonder to Jesus for those that did. If you ever think back to the Gospels, if you've ever read them, when you see people interacting with Jesus and they truly trust him, they truly believe in him, you see almost this, this wonder to Jesus. Because, see, Jesus wasn't someone who necessarily in his personhood seemed miraculous, right? He, he was very plain. He was not of a rich background. He was a, he was a carpenter. He created things. Like there wasn't, there wasn't anything that was royal about him in his appearance, but still people for some reason could, could recognize something was different about Jesus. But then there were some people that didn't, their hearts were hardened to him. And so he walked among people, but people didn't recognize him. But this next part, he says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. His own people did not receive him. What does he mean by that? He means the children of Israel. Those that, that memorized the scripture, those that knew who the Messiah was. Yet, when Jesus comes onto the scene and is literally the embodiment of what Isaiah was talking about, the Pharisees didn't recognize him. The religious leaders didn't see him as, as Savior. Instead, they saw him as a heretic. Because he threatened what they loved and they loved their their righteousness and they loved their power and they didn't love Jesus. And so if we're honest, don't we sometimes do the same thing? Don't we sometimes have a hard time recognizing Jesus or recognizing the way that God works in our own lives? Especially when it's obvious. You know, I, this last Wednesday, I had, I had the opportunity. We, we went through and shared some testimonies from one another. And, and something that was kind of a commonality between a lot of them is the fact that a lot of us, we thought we were Christians and we thought we, we knew the Lord, but it wasn't until a little bit later on that, that God truly softened our hearts and revealed himself to us. Even though we, we went to church, even though we heard the gospel, even though we read our Bibles, God had to soften our hearts for us to truly see him. And so it may be unbelievable for us to look at these Pharisees and look at people that walked among Jesus and go, how did they not recognize him? But we do the same thing. But then we have the opposite kind of people, the people that truly believed him. Verses 12 through 13 says this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. This describes those that believed and trusted in him. And there are plenty of people that did during his time here on earth. And this is very similar to how people respond now. And then he uses this language that those that trust in Christ are born again, not of human efforts and not of human desire, but they're born again of God. We see a similar language in John chapter three, whenever he's talking to Nicodemus and he's telling Nicodemus, in order for you to inherit and uh, to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, well, that's weird. 
my mother is not alive anymore. How's that going to work? But it's not being born again in the physical sense. It's not being born again in the way that, that we in our own world would interpret that truth. But rather, it's that we should be born again spiritually. That we are created brand new. That our hearts are transformed. That we are renewed beings. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a new birth that, that only God can do in us. And it's through being born again that we're reconciled with God. And that it's through that that we are considered children of God. This children of God language is also used in Romans chapter 8 when we talk about being adopted, right? Paul in his letter talks about how we are adopted as sons, co-heirs with Christ, able to cry out to God, Abba, Father, which is a, it's almost like a tender way of you calling out to your own dad. And so when we become Christians, when we are saved, we are given the rights of a child of God, meaning that we get to be with him forever in heaven and we become co-heirs with Christ. It's this beautiful, almost picture of adoption that we have that we are brought into God's family when we are new believers. And so we have the kind of people that responded to him, those that rejected him and those that accepted him. And again, this, this kind of response is, still happens today. This is the same kind of responses that people have towards Jesus now. They reject him or they believe in him. That's it. And so what did Jesus come to do? Then John ends this prologue with a, a bit of a summary of, what Je- of why Jesus was here and what this book really is going to flesh out. Verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as one, as one of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came to live as a man in the flesh. Jesus suffered, lived, and experienced the same struggles that we experience. And even through his flesh, we see the glory of God. And this is seen all throughout the character of Jesus and the signs that he does throughout this book. As we look through this gospel together, we're going to see these different signs that Jesus performs, each of them reflecting his deity and reflecting his equality with God. A few weeks ago, we talked about Philippians chapter 2, and we talked about um, this, this example of humility that Jesus shares. And in that example of humility, we see how Jesus didn't use his equality with God as an advantage on this earth, But we also saw that he came to live as a servant. Jesus came to serve others, not to be served. Jesus came to die for others. Jesus came to love others. And that's what's reflective in his entire ministry. And that's what he's saying here is that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. How incredible is that? That God would love us so much that that he would literally endure the fleshly struggles that we endure, overcome those, and live in a way that we can't live and die a death that we deserve so that we could know him and be reconciled with him forever. None of us would do that. As much as, as much as we would say that we love people, we care for people. Can you imagine being in a place where you give up everything, you know, and everything you are to live in a hard place where you're going to be rejected, where you're going to be despised. We are going to endure struggles and suffering 
and then you're going to die a death you didn't deserve? I think a lot of us would have a hard time saying, oh yeah, sign me up, I'll do that. But God did because of his love for you and I. And then in verses 16 through 17, anytime you see a phrase or words repeated in scripture, that's really important. And so he repeats this phrase, grace and truth, two times. And this, this word of glory and grace appear even more. And so this, this phrase of grace and truth, this encompasses Jesus's mission that he came to show grace and to reveal truth. Verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so then lastly, in verse 18, we have this statement, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Church, it is through the life of Jesus, it is through seeing what he does in the flesh that we get to see the glory of God the Father. It is through Jesus that we experience God. To see his love and to see his, his design for us and his desires for us and the way that we should live and the way we should love him and to love others. That all came through Jesus. And we experience his glory through someone that we can see and feel and experience. And so what are some points of application from this text? What, what do we do because of this prologue? How does this change our lives? Well, the first, I believe, is that we need to recognize that Jesus is in more than just the Gospels. It's easy for us to say, okay, well, Jesus lives in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and he's somewhat in Acts, and that's about it. <laughs> or we see him maybe in Revelation in a different way, not in the same way he was in this, but that's not true. The Son and Jesus himself are echoed throughout the Old Testament. Not just in the book of Isaiah, but if you read your Old Testament, you get to see how the promised Messiah, there, there are hints to him all throughout that scripture. And the Son worked even in the very beginning. He wasn't sidelined until the Gospels. The next is that we need to witness to the grace and truth of Christ. As John the Baptist witnessed to others and told other people about Jesus, we should do the same. If we belong to him and, and we are truly Christians and we truly know the Lord, why would we not share that with other people? Why would we not talk about the grace and truth that comes from Jesus, this, this, this level of joy and peace and understanding that comes from knowing the Lord personally? Being able to endure every storm in life because we have this relationship with Christ. Because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, why would we not share that with people? Why would we not want people to know about that? And then the last thing is, if you belong to God and you are a child of God, does your life reflect that? Does your heart and does your life and does your actions truly reflect someone who believes this grace and truth? Because in God's word, Jesus was asked at some point, what is the greatest commandment? And he answers, the greatest commandment is to, in a basic sense, love God and love others. Loving God and loving others is, a, is an indication of, of where we are in our own walks with the Lord. There are indications that show our own relationships with God. And if we're not loving God and we're not loving others, then the question I have to ask is, does Jesus truly dwell within us? 
if our life doesn't reflect one of grace and truth, if we're not loving others in the way Jesus did, if we're not following after him, then, then, then what's truly there? And so as we close and have this time of invitation, I want you to ask yourself that question. Is, are you like one of the people that rejected Jesus? Maybe religiously you have all the boxes checked. Maybe you go to church every Sunday. Maybe you read your Bible. Maybe you pray. But have you ever truly repented of your sin? And have ever, you ever truly entrusted Jesus with your life? See, there's a difference between doing all the right things and then truly trusting Jesus with your life. It requires you to let go of the things that you love over Jesus. And it requires you to really fall before your knees and, and follow after the things that he would have you to do. And those things he would have you to do are hard and may be difficult. But we know that when we trust Jesus with our lives, we know that he has the best intention for us. And that his desire and his plan for our lives go beyond just the time that we have here on earth. And the other question is, if you do belong to God and, and you know that you have a relationship with him, the question I have for you is, are you living like you do? Does your life reflect that of grace and truth? Or are you putting other things first before him? Let's pray. Father, we just come before you. And God, we just ask that you would stir in our hearts. And God, that if, if there's sin that we need to repent of, God, that we would. That we would confess those things to you. God, that we would seek to serve and honor you well. God, I pray that, that we would not be like the Pharisees. And God, that we would not be like those who rejected you, Father. But rather that we would be as those who belong to you. God, those that love in a, in a almost a supernatural way because of the Holy Spirit. God, those who are patient and kind, gentle. God, those that seek to, to draw others near to you, not away. God, I pray that if there's anyone in this room, Father, that doesn't know you, God, that has never truly trusted you, God, that they would do so. Father, they would let go with whatever it is, is is keeping them from fully trusting you, God, whether it's any comforts in their lives or, or God, it's, it's maybe their own pride. Father, whatever it may be, God, I pray that you would soften their hearts, God, that they may receive you and know you. God, for the Christian in this room, God, I pray that we would be challenged to share our faith and God, that we would hold your son Jesus in the same level of accord as John the Baptist did, God, as is seeing Jesus as not only a man who lived perfectly and died for us and was rose, risen from the dead, but God, as someone who, who was fully you, who was there at the very beginning, God, who, who knows us intimately, God, who, who loves us deeply, God, who created us. Father, I pray you would help us to, to understand that and to glorify him through that. So God, I pray for this invitation. I pray for this time, God, if if anyone needs prayer, God, if anyone needs, Father, even, even just some encouragement or they have questions about salvation, God, I pray that they would come forward this time. So, Father, I thank you for all that you do. It's your sons, let me pray. Amen.